Thank you, Russell. And good morning, everybody. Wow, what a prayer. <laughs> so let's just pray first, shall we? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And that's our prayer this morning, that your name might be glorified. And we ask it in Jesus. Amen. Sometimes you, when you pray, and I know when I pray, you pray things and you may feel that um, you're not sure whether God really is going to answer. Does anybody feel that way? And yet he promised, he said, uh, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. Uh, and in 1 John chapter 5, it tells us that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we not, not only he hears us, but we know, we can be confident that we have the requests that we've asked. Now, this is a prayer of Jesus. This is the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer that we talk about, our Father who art in heaven, is his prayer given to us, of course. But this is his prayer at the eve of the cross. After this prayer he walks out into Gethsemane. This is the last night that he had with his disciples and he prayed this in front of his disciples. John, in the Gospel of John from chapter 13 right through to chapter 17 is the eve of the cross, Friday. He, he spent that evening teaching his disciples, speaking to them, uh, he began in John 13, washing their feet, I think you'll recall. And then he taught them. And as he taught them, he came to this point where now he's going to talk to his heavenly Father. God manifest in the flesh, speaking with his heavenly Father. Now, there's a lot here. You probably went through and it. You kind of went through and through and through and you thought, yes, a whole lot of stuff coming through here. How do I put it all together? We're never going to put it all together. But what it does reveal and what I want to do this morning is to reflect a little bit about on what it reveals about the heart of Jesus. Because his prayer to his father reflected what was important to Jesus. And what was important to him ought to be important to me if I'm a follower of Jesus. This is what really, of all the things that he could say before he stepped out to Gethsemane, where he continued to pray, of all the things that he could pray, this is what he prayed. This is what John recorded. He may have said other things, but this is what, under the influence of the Spirit of God, John recorded about what Jesus asked of his heavenly Father. And we know that he prayed according to the will of God. <laughs> and we know the request that he made would be fulfilled. And so if we pray some of these things, we know. We can have a confidence that God will answer that prayer. Now, sometimes we pray for things like health and, and other immediate needs, and that's fine because he's our Heavenly Father. Our prayer is a cry and a worship to God. But it's also good to remember that if some of those things we, we, we ask, perhaps if someone in the family would, 
would, would recover from an illness, that it might be, if it be your will. Because we don't always know. Because we can't see how God's purposes are unfolding. But there are things that we can pray and we can have a confidence that God is going to fulfil. And so if we allow some of these things to permeate our prayer, it will lift our faith. We can start to look to Jesus in a way where we actually believe that God is going to hear and he's going to answer. There are four, well, let's say there are four things that he actually asked for. And of course, prayer is more than just asking. Prayer is a conversation with God. We see right at the beginning that Jesus, when he had spoken these words, the words to his disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. His eyes were at his disciples and now he was going to lift them up <laughs> to his heavenly father. And he, he then conversed with his heavenly father. And he asked four things. So if you like, there are four phrases that might help you put this together as a chapter. The first thing is he, he, he asked, glorify your son that, you may, that the son may glorify you. So he's asking that God, his heavenly father, would be glorified. The other thing he asks is that he, he would keep his people. We see that later uh, in uh, verse um, 11. Holy Father, keep them in your name. And in verse uh, 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So he wants God's name to be glorified. He wants his people to be kept, protected, guarded. And then uh, in verse um, 17, sanctify them in thy truth. Set them apart. <laughs> they're distinct. They're separate. Once we, we, once we believe, once we trust in Christ, we're no longer the same person. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. If there is no change in the heart, if there's no yearning after God, if there's no sense of dependence upon him, then I don't know that you're in the family of God. Because when we see our state, when we see our hopelessness and our help helplessness, when we cry out to God and when he does that work in our hearts, we know we're different, we're distinct. And so he prays that they would be sanctified, set apart, not of the world, in the world, but not of the world. And then he prays in the, in the last part from verse 20, several times he says it, uh, that they may all be one, that they may all be one, even as we are one. And that the love right at the end, which you have loved me with, may be in them and I in them. So glorifying the Father... Kept, preserved, protected, being set apart, sanctified, being one, being unified, without division, without contention, 
These are the things that Jesus prayed for. Of all the things he could pray for, these are the things that he prayed for. So let's just think about these a little bit this morning. Uh, um, specifically, individually, we'll walk through them and just see what God can teach us. So it tells us here in, in the beginning that, uh, that he lifted up his eyes to heaven in verse 1 and he said then, Father, the hour has come. Of course, he had been saying right through the gospel, uh, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. And the hour he's talking about is not a specific 60 minutes. The hour has come. It's the time when history <laughs> history would, would reach its climax, if you like. When fallen man, the sin of fallen man would be placed upon the holy Son of God on the tree at Calvary where he would purchase our redemption. This hour had come. This is why he had come. This was his purpose. He said he came not to be ministered unto but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's why Jesus came. And now his hour had come and now he was praying to his father. That was the time. That was the time he was praying. And the first thing he prays is glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And then he goes on to say, since you have given him authority over all flesh, so give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And we'll think about how that fits. <laughs> Why is he talking about eternal life there? But the first thing is glorify God. Glorify the Father. He does say glorify the Son. The Son was glorified on the cross and in his exaltation. But the reason for that was to bring glory to God. Now, this is why we were made. We sang about it a little while ago. Holy, holy, holy. There's a picture of heaven in the book of Revelation, in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of Revelation. And it describes there, it's a vision that John has. It's, it's an image. It's a picture, if you like, because of course God is not literally sitting on a throne <laughs> as a person. But it's a vision that's given to John to give him a sense of what it's like to be in heaven a sense of what is happening there. And what he describes there is four creatures. Well, he describes a great deal there, but he describes four creatures. And those creatures that saying, day and night, day and night, this is what we were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of Almighty. <laughs> Worthy is the Lamb. <laughs> we sang it. Worthy is the Lamb. Day and night. Day and night. Why is it that we don't praise God like that? I suppose you could say we're frail, we get tired, we don't have the same enthusiasm. But I'll tell you, there is a reason. We don't yet see what they're seeing. 
And when we see Jesus, and the more we see Jesus as he is, then there will be an overflow of praise. This worship that came from these creatures wasn't a constrained worship. It wasn't as if God had commanded them to worship. It wasn't that Jesus here, under constraint, was asking that God's name would be glorified. It was his deep desire. It was at the heart of his soul. And that's the difference, isn't it? When we come to worship God here, we can sing, holy, holy, holy. We can sing, worthy is the lamb. Sometimes we enjoy the music, and I do, (laughs) and the singing. Sometimes we feel perhaps this is what we should do. We're Christians here, aren't we? We meet. And yet, the worship and the praise and the glory that we seek for God should be something that comes from the heart. But it doesn't always, does it? And if it doesn't, it's only because we don't see what those four creatures will see. Now, one day... (laughs) One day we're going to see him as he is and we'll be like him in that day. But till then, we can seek him. We can learn to look unto Jesus as the author and finisher of our faith. Wow, we spend so much time reflecting and thinking about all kinds of things. And so we reap what we sow. But isn't it beautiful? And I'm sure you've experienced it when you've thought about what God has done for you. When you've thought about what he's taken you out of. When you've thought about perhaps where you would be today but for the grace of God. And then you say, Lord, I want to glorify you and praise you, not because it's a constraint, but it's because it's a constraint of love. And so in a natural and a heartfelt and a deep way, it wasn't just words for Jesus. He prayed, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. It was summarised in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him together. So everything else we do is kind of peripheral. It's sweeping up. Everything else. Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We're created to glorify God. We're created to be lost in wonder, love and praise, as Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, lost in wonder, love and praise. So that's what God says. This is what Jesus prayed. And we're tempted often to seek our own glory. So where does he come to then? He says that this 
is eternal life, that they may know you. He says, first of all, in verse 2, since you have given him authority, glorify the Son, that he may glorify you, since you have given him authority to give eternal life. You see, this is how the Son glorifies the Father. He brings eternal life. He brings life to the dead. This is Jesus' work. He, he actually says it there, um, I, I glorified you on earth, in verse 4, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. Of course, Jesus was pre-existent. <laughs> At the beginning of John, chapter 1, the Word became flesh. He had a glory with the Father, and now he was here praying that again he would be glorified in that he was going to give life to us, the dead. Isn't it a remarkable thing that, that God is glorified, and it's to his glory that he's taken us, and in his grace and mercy... He's chosen to take us as lost and dead people, the walking dead, and give us life. And notice how he gives it. He says, this is eternal life that you might reach the standard. This is eternal life that you might work hard. This is eternal life that you might do the right thing and come to church. That wasn't it at all. How does he describe eternal life? This is eternal life. It's relational. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this brings glory to God the Father. It doesn't bring glory to God the Father when we think somehow we're going to get there. That's, that's despite. <laughs> that's not glory to God. Even to feel, even to feel that somehow we might even be able to do it is an affront to God. It really, it really shows that I have no conception of how, how far I've fallen. And look, as you, get, as you get older, I can always say this now, you see. I'm over 60. But you, you fail enough times. You do. Even as a believer. You try to do things and you get them wrong. And you start, it starts to dawn upon you that all have sinned and fallen short. And there is nothing that I can do to get that right. Isn't it a wonder that God gives life as a gift to whoever would come? And that's his invitation. And that's my only hope. And so this is life. He gives, he gives life. He gives life when we come into a relationship 
with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's the only way. And that's how he glorified God. So he prays that God would be glorified. And then there's a passage from verse 6, pretty much to around verse 15, where really the focus is on being kept. So we've, we've received life. God's been glorified in, in, in that wonder of, of delivering us and redeeming us and making us his people. And, and now Jesus is praying that we would be kept in his name. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name. I've revealed your name. This was what he did when God became man. He humbled himself and he took on the form of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. And he revealed God and he revealed the Father. In particular here, he revealed the Father to the disciples. But what was Jesus' concern? See, when he because because he's praying this, it's 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 an evident that he was concerned that there would be a battle. Now, we may have life, we may be his people, and in particular for the disciples, Jesus was about to leave. When he gave his life on the cross, he rose from the dead. Praise God! But then he was taken up, he ascended into heaven and they were left now. Well, they were not left alone. (laughs) But up till then he had been walking with them and he says this, you know, he he revealed his name in verse 6 and he says he kept them. You know, these were the people that God gave them And in verse 7, now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave them. He he revealed God to them. He revealed God's word to them. Um, And and so in in his presence, (laughs) they were protected. Wouldn't it be great walking with Jesus? You know, you'd be watching the way he encountered people. (laughs) And dealt with the sick, and he always knew what to do. And when the Pharisees tried to trip him up, as we, and the Sadducees, as we heard in in previous weeks, you kind of would be standing there with your mouth open, wouldn't you? Thinking, what's he going to do next? And and they were protected, and they were kept. And now he was leaving. He was leaving, and there is a an evil one. There is spiritual battle going on. And so he prays in verse 11, I am no longer in the world. I'm leaving. But they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given them, that they may be one even as we are one. So while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you gave me. So he did keep them and he protected them and he taught them. But now that was not going to be the case. 
And in verse 14, I have given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them, protect them, guard them. Don't take them out. (laughs) Well, that's my prayer so often. Lord, get me out of this situation. (laughs) It's a bit hard. I would not have chosen this path. But Jesus has placed us to be in the world. We're not here to hide. We're not here to become recluses. We have to be there. And as we're there, we're dependent upon God to keep us. Do you ever pray, Lord, keep me? In this situation. Well, you know, if you were a kind of an engineer and a logician like me, you know, you'd say, Well, Jesus prayed it, it's done. <laughs> He's going to get the answer, isn't he? God's going to keep me. Well, yes, but prayer is a mystery. And, and ultimately, we pray because God said to pray. I guess I, I also pray because I can't help it. You can't help talking to your Heavenly Father, can you? But you pray because God says. It's, it's interesting, I can't remember exactly where it is, but back in the book of Ezekiel, God had given a whole lot of promises to Ezekiel, the prophet. And then, right, I think it's chapter 36, right at the end of the chapter, he says, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. But God, you've just said you're going to do it. Yes, but I will still be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. So there's a sense in which even though Jesus asked this, and he's going to work out his purposes, he keeps us, he does keep us. He guards us and he protects us. But we can still pray that. And we are to pray it. And we should pray it for each other. And we know that if we ask according to his will, and we know this is his will, that he keep his children, then we have the requests. (laughs) And we can be certain, we can be certain that God answers. We know that he will. And we know that he wants to keep us, and he does. In John chapter 10, a little while before this, Jesus was reassuring his disciples, really, but others. He said that um, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You remember that passage? And he goes on to say that no person can take them out of my hand. And no person can take them out of my Father's hand. So there's a sense in which we're in the hands of God. I love that verse, the eternal God is our refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. We're kept by God. We're held by God. And one of the reasons we're kept by God in this way is because the heart of our Saviour is such that he asked the Father to do this. Isn't that a wonderful assurance that whichever circumstance I am, 
that God will keep me. Because I know he loves me, but I know Jesus prayed for this. You might say, well, he was praying for his disciples. He was, but you see, and you've probably noted it, further down, he says in verse 20, I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word. (laughs) That's us. That's us. So this prayer is not is for his disciples specifically. He says it's not for the world. He's specific about that. But he says it's not only for his disciples there and then. It's for his children through the centuries. It's for all of those who might believe through the word that they proclaimed. And, of course, they did. They proclaimed the word... <laughs> in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. They did that and we're the beneficiaries and we continue to do it. And so he prays that they might be kept and he prays that we might be kept and we are. And we are kept. But he prays more than that, doesn't he? In this whole sense of of being in the world and being kept, he brings us to another another thought, if you like, in verse 16 and 17. He says, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. We're different. We're separate. We said that. And then he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify. The word is set apart, similar word to holy. (laughs) There are two camps, if you like. There are two kingdoms. The kingdom of darkness is going to be done away with, of course, but there are those that are in the household of God and those that are not. Those that are have nothing to boast of, of course. It's not as if, well, hey, I'm, I'm here. <laughs> I'm better. We're all lost and undone. But there are those who by the grace of God have cried out. <laughs> it says that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. There are those who have called and they were saved. And they are separate. They are distinct. We are to be like that. It saddens God's heart, I'm sure, when we don't behave like that. We're to be separate and distinct. And and this is the truth. We're to be set apart in the truth. I mean... (coughs) What is truth? Well, Pilate asked that question, didn't he? Ultimately, the truth is what is. And the truth is in a person, in Christ. And everything else outside of him and his word, if you like, um, is our thinking. You know, sometimes it's right and sometimes it's not. 
I have my own ideas about things and I'm sure you have your own ideas about things. And sometimes we can debate. <laughs> Worse, sometimes we can argue. But we really don't know, do we? We don't know. I, <clears throat> I can't remember the exact <clears throat> the words, but John Wesley, towards the end of his life, uh, made the comment that when he was a younger man, he was certain about thousands of things. But now at the eve of his death, there was really only one thing that he was sure about. And that related to his own sinfulness and the confidence that he had in Christ as his saviour. Now you might think that's pretty extreme. There's lots of things that we about well perhaps but we're too sure aren't we we're too sure it made me think of James in the book of James in chapter 4 and this describes me to a T so often but let's see if it describes you James chapter 4 says come now you who say Today, and this is verse 13 to 16, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Hey, look, this is us, isn't it? Tomorrow we're going to do this. This is my plan. Hey, tomorrow, we've got the forecast for COVID tomorrow. <laughs> if I can be a bit facetious, <laughs> we know what's going to happen in six months' time, don't we? We know what's going to happen in 10 years' time with the climate. Now, I'm not going to be too controversial here, but we really don't know a thing. We don't. We don't. And when people say, this is what's going to happen tomorrow... It should always be qualified. Now, I'm not saying you should say the words, although I like to say the words. It should always be qualified if the Lord wills. You don't know. They don't know. We have no idea. That's not to say we shouldn't think. It's not to say we shouldn't plan. We should be like the ant. <laughs> and prepare for the next day. But like it says in James, what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You might not be here tomorrow. Then you'd have nothing to worry about. If you're in him. But you, sh you, you don't know. So it says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And it says this. This is an interesting way it ends. It says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. You know that? So every time we self-confidence, every time we plan independently of God. Every time we think that this is what I'm going to do tomorrow or this is what I'm going to cook next day for you, for you cooks, 
it's the issue of the heart. You know, that some of the... In the old days, they often used to write things and write DV on the end. So older people might know about that. You have to be really old. <laughs> Dio Valente, if the Lord wills. You know, so you'd write this letter and that, and at the end, DV, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills. Now, I know it can become, you know, it can become just um, a tradition without meaning. But God wants that to be in our heart all the time. He wants us to have a DV in our heart all the time and to have a sense that my future is in your hand. And God, you are going to set me apart and sanctify me, not on the basis of my speculations, but on the reality and the truth of what God's purposes are and his unfolding purposes are to make me sanctified, and what does that mean? To make me like Jesus. That's what it is. Ultimately, sanctification is about being Christ-like. That's his purpose. For whom he foreknew, it says in Romans chapter 8, 29, he also predestined that we might be conformed to the image of his Son, so see, he's prayed that God's, God the Father might be glorified. He's prayed that we be kept. He's praying now that we would be sanctified or that we would be coming Christ-like, that we would be becoming like Jesus. <laughs> Mouthful. Now, how do you do that? The secret. Who wants to know the secret? It's an open secret. It's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. It's, it's not something you do, by the way. It works out in your life, no doubt. But it's a work of God. And in 2 Corinthians 3.18, it says, We all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Father, the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. As we behold him, we are transformed into his likeness. That's your choice. You could spend time to behold him, to reflect on him, to thank him, to praise him, to worship him. Not wasted times. They bring glory to God and they are transforming you from one degree of glory to another into the image of Jesus. They are sanctifying you. Finally, the preacher said, unity. He said it in verse, from verse 20, 21, that they all may be one. Verse 22, that they may be one, even as we are one. And finally, that the love which you have loved me with may be in them and I in them. God's desire is for Christians to dwell together in unity, in love. Don't see it always, do we? We're so concerned with making sure other people are like us <laughs> so often. We're so concerned with being right. We're so concerned 
with straightening other people out rather than seeking to dwell together in unity. Uh, it's interesting in Psalm 133.1, lovely verse, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Now, this doesn't mean that we all think the same because we don't and we never will. But it means that I should be more concerned about another person and loving them than I should about them agreeing with me. Now, I probably haven't said that quite right. Obviously, there are things that are important in terms of the doctrines of the Scriptures. But there's so much that we differ on that are, I'd have to say, just speculative. And we don't really know. And the thing that Jesus was greatly concerned about here was that amongst his people, now he's not talking about the world, amongst his people that there would be divisiveness, contentious, trouble. And it comes because we don't have love. Because the, the, the unity he's talking about is a unity that is related to love. And we can't have a critical and a competitive spirit. A competitive. Don't we often think, wouldn't it be great if this church was growing, but I'm not concerned about the other churches. I want to see this church grow. <laughs> but you know, there's God wants to see the Father glorified by little or by, by many. And, and our hearts just so much need to change. Lord, change them. You know, we do get more excited when we're prosperous and successful and we're not so worried about one another. You know, the church is in a horrible state in many places in Australia. And I'm sure God's heart breaks when people are abandoning his truth. But he wants us in our role to dwell together in unity. Rather than focus on how we can become critical and competitive, to focus on how we might love. Because love covers a multitude of sins. So we come to the end of the prayer. Jesus finishes this prayer on the same note that he began the discourse. In chapter 13, he said to his disciples, A new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you love one another. And he finishes here in his prayer on that same note, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. He wants the Father to be glorified. He's asking that we would be kept in his name. He wants us to be sanctified 
to grow in grace and in the knowledge of God, to become Christ-like. He wants us to be one, to be looking out for the interests of others and not just ourselves. And above all things, have fervent love one for another. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we're so in awe when we see the way Jesus prayed and and we don't really fathom it at all, but we, we're humbled and we're thankful that you've given us this insight and this little window into the heart of God and may it change us as we see it and transform us a little more today into the image of Jesus Christ, we ask in his name. Amen.